From WBUR in Boston, this is Stylus. Each hour explores an idea in sound, music, and listening. In this hour, we explore the sound of science fiction. A lot of times, you know, science fiction really just takes the the modern issues of the day and explores them in a far-off futuristic context. Whoa, 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 this sound that really was rather terrifying. It's certainly going to make you say, hmm, something odd about that. It's, it's no, there's no limits. There's no limits. You know, like space is the place. There's no limits. Get any notions of happy days out of your mind. That is a romanticized fiction of the past, that everybody was sitting around listening to Elvis and enjoying themselves. It was a very hateful time. There was the Red Scare. There was the fear of instant oblivion by atomic war. It was a very mean time. And Twilight Zone captured the mood of what the 50s really were like. And the music captured not only the show, but the mood of the period of time itself. My name is Douglas Brody. I'm a professor at the University of Texas San Antonio in the Department of Humanities, Classics, and Philosophy. Like most people my age, I'm 70, I grew up with The Twilight Zone, fell madly in love with the series, and it's one of those cases where the magic happened. When people speak about the theme song for Twilight Zone, uh, they've got to be a bit careful. Most people forget there were actually two. Now, the first season, uh, the music for Twilight Zone was overseen by Bernard Herrmann. Now, Herrmann achieved that with strings. He also used harp, flute, brass. Kind of this minor key, rising and falling horn sections, very subtle, very quiet, doesn't really feel shocking, which is what we all kind of think of the Twilight Zone as being. Um, it's strange and eerie and a little unsettling, but it doesn't really grab you. My name is Gabriel McKee. Uh, I'm the author of the book The Gospel According to Science Fiction and the blog sfgospel.com. But meanwhile, back to Twilight Zone. Let's segue. There was a fellow by the name of Mortius Constant. He was a very avant-garde artist. He put away the strings so familiar with Bernard Herrmann and instead used the bongo, saxophone, French horns. And when most people think back to Twilight Zone, that's exactly when that more familiar theme began. So the, the Marius Constant score uh, theme song for The Twilight Zone opens with this dissonant four-line note played on an electric guitar. They're piercing, they're dissonant, uh, and it's unsettling. It makes you feel uneasy and strange. 
Uh, it puts you into this weird state of mind where you feel like the rug's been pulled out from under you and you don't really know what to expect. This is not just slashing strings anymore. Uh, this is a, a kind of a freedom rather than entrapment. Then this horn section playing these dark atonal tone clusters comes in underneath that. Then that's interrupted by these fast-paced bongos, and then Rod Serling's voice comes in. There was a harmony, if that's the right word. There was an intersection between that unique music and Rod Serling's own voice. He was born to be a great writer, but he was also born to be a TV star. A journey into time with highly questionable results. You can almost hear him clenching his jaw and he's clipping all his syllables. Proving on one hand that the threads of history are woven tightly and the skein of events cannot be undone. But on the other hand, there are small fragments of tapestry that can be altered. And there was a way in which he snipped out the words. There was a rat-a-tat-tat machine gun fire to his voice, but with that sort of husky intellectual quality to it as well. Rod Serling's voice gives you back the context that the music's taken away. We've already had this visceral, unsettled reaction to the sounds that we've heard, and Rod Serling explains why we're feeling that way. We're entering a new dimension. It's cold comfort, really, because in a lot of cases, the story is just as unsettling as the music. I think the greatest reason that Twilight Zone clicked the way it did in its own time was because here, what Rod Serling did from practically the first episode was to take science fiction and use it for a greater purpose, which was social commentary on the times. Uh, the episodes deal with the bomb and the feeling of a threat of nuclear oblivion. Uh, there's a huge condemnation of racism. They were very smart shows, and there was something in them that I'm not even sure Rod realized at the time. He knew he was doing social commentary, disguised as imaginative fiction entertainment, but they were universal. They spoke above the din of their era. They spoke to people 10 years later and 10 years after that, and they speak to people today. It, it addresses what Greek tragedies addressed, what Shakespeare addressed, what the great works of drama always address, what it means to be human. Now the questions that come to mind. Where is this place and when is it? What kind of world where ugliness is the norm and beauty the deviation from that norm? The answer is, it doesn't make any difference. Because the old saying happens to be true. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In this year or a hundred years hence. On this planet or wherever there is human life, perhaps out amongst the stars. Lesson to be learned in the Twilight Zone. I mean, you hear the Twilight Zone theme and you immediately know what that is. And, and that, I mean, but that composer, you know, he's all over the place in sci-fi. His music is everything. My name's April. I work at Videoport. This is Videoport. And I'm a movie person. There's no real job title. I just 
I work here, and I love movies. <laughs> so yeah, let me ask, when, when you think sound and science fiction, is there anything that immediately comes to mind? It's electronic sounds, but also the sounds of laser beams. We use what's called a blaster beam in the first movie, and then you hear it again. It's this weird, crazy instrument that was invented by someone who actually was a character in the series. Is that right? Yeah, in Star Trek, yeah. Yeah. A lot of the times when we think about the future, we go into the electronic. You don't see that normally in any other genre of film. Blade Runner is an adaptation of Philip K. Dick's 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And it is uh, somewhat of a loose adaptation, though, though, though true to it in really interesting thematic ways. But uh, it stars Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard, who is, is a Blade Runner, that is someone who is, uh, whose job, he's a police officer whose job is to kill or decommission um, androids. My name is Keith Phipps. I'm editorial director of The Dissolve, a website dedicated to film. It's a Los Angeles. It's almost kind of evolved into the ideal noir setting where it's always raining. It's always overcast. There are shadows and piercing beams of light everywhere. And it's, I've heard many people call Blade Runner eye candy. And it's exactly the case because all of these images are quite beautiful. And the soundtrack, um, more than anything else, is encouraging us to look beyond the obvious and maybe see the, you know, the, the space for humanity and, and for salvation in a place that we might at first think is really hellish. My name is Joanna de Mers, and I'm an associate professor of musicology at USC's Thornton School of Music. And among other things, I specialize in electronic music. Uh, all right, so the music. Um, it's interesting. V- Vangelis is a, is a, a Greek composer. Uh, he started in, in Prague rock in, in the 60s and sort of followed a path that others followed as well from, from, from Prague rock uh, through kind of electronic music uh, in the 1970s. And by the late 1970s, he was doing these kind of, he was doing these electronic scores for, for documentaries and, and, and smaller films. And in, in 1981, he had his biggest success of all, uh, providing the music to Chariots of Fire. There's, there's, if you listen to those al- albums he did, there's kind of a, um, a brightness to them and kind of uh, when you think of new age music, it's kind of what you expect. And Blade Runner's score, part of what I, I like about it is it doesn't really provide really strong emotional cues. In some ways, it kind of is more focuses viewers' attention on what's happening and does not really tell them how to feel about what's happening.
this is a, a prime example of what you would call ambient music. We see this, this, this very bizarre scene of people walking with umbrellas that have some sort of fluorescent uh, lighting inside the umbrella stem. And it's gorgeous, and it's unexplained. And uh, it doesn't really further the plot, but the sound and the, the lingering music from the scene that has just ended and the, 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 the rain and all of it just tells us with, with sound and with image more than any voiceover or any uh, dialogue could about this place. This is sound that we uh, don't always register, that um, doesn't always break through into the forefront of our attention, but nevertheless really creates a, a mood, atmosphere. When you interview people about a UFO experience, it's almost like a police interrogation or investigation. You know, you're not actually studying the UFO. The UFO is gone. This is Lee Tizard, head UFO researcher, that's unidentified flying object researcher, of Newfoundland and Labrador. He's talking about a guy. A gentleman, Mr. R, we'll call him. A marine engineer who saw something strange in the sky one night. In his interview, he admitted that he never believed in any sort of uh, UFOs or flying saucers or, or anything of that nature. And after this experience, he certainly did uh, change his mind. It's a Saturday afternoon. Lee's sitting at home, and his phone rings. And I picked up the phone, and it was a gentleman. And he was quite excited because on the 16th of December, 1996, he and his wife... His daughter and son-in-law were coming into St. John's. It was about 9 or 9.30 at night. And as they went through an area called the Heart's Content Barrens, they said they saw a very bright light coming towards them. Mr. R was keeping his eye on it because it wasn't a, you know, a flight path or anything, and it was quite low. He said it was probably you know, five or 600 feet in the air. So the object got closer and closer and closer, and then it got so close that they actually could see a structured object. He said there was no wings, there was no 
uh, rotors. There was no aerodynamic or engines or anything of that nature. It was very big. He said it was bigger than a commercial airliner. And uh, Mr. R said that the light was so bright that you could probably have read the newspaper outside of the car. He said it was beautiful. The object got really close to them and hovered over the road. So they stopped the car and got out. So far, Mr. R's story sounds a lot like a UFO encounter in the movies. It's strange, but it's also what you'd expect to hear about a UFO. Hollywood has uh, Hollywoodized UFOs, you know, in the, all the science fiction and all the uh, flying saucer films from the, uh, uh, the 1950s, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, one of my favorites. Flying saucers have invaded our planet. Washington, London, Paris, Moscow are key targets. The whole world is under attack. And uh, the other one with the robot court. Gosh, what was the name of that one? A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. The day the Earth stood still. And uh, in the 50s, uh, theremins were actually used for that eerie kind of sci-fi type of sound. But uh, I can say firsthand that, you know, it's really, it's really not, uh, not that way at all. Let's return to Mr. R. They stood in the middle of the road looking up at this object when he realized the strangest thing. There was no sound. This didn't make any sense. Mr. R knew that a machine that big and complex should be making a sound. You know, we see a helicopter or a, an aircraft, there's always a sound associated, even if it's flying off in a distance. Very often you, you hear an aircraft, but you don't see it until it, you know, it comes by. So if an object is, you know, a few hundred feet away from you and it's not making any sound, it's certainly uh, going to make you say, hmm, something odd about that. They observed it in the sky for three or four minutes, and then it took off slowly and then zoomed away, following the road back to Victoria, where they had just come from.
right now. Exactly, I get down. I am intergalactically known from my home on back to ancient Rome. This is Zach. We're here at Aresia 2014, which is New England's largest and most diverse science fiction and fantasy convention. It's about 9.30 p.m. and we're trying to find some filth. Uh, my name is Matthew Ebel, and I make loud noises into microphones and bang on pianos. And somehow or another, I do that for a living. The Revolution received a video transmission from what appears to be the local authorities. I always thought that Filk was just taking existing songs, like, you know, basically like, like doing the Weird Al thing, only replacing the lyrics with... Uh, you know, sci-fi or fantasy or whatever the, the filk is about. But I've been told that filking is just, you know, like nerd music, more or less. You know. Worlds grow old and suns grow cold. A lot of people ask, how do you define what's filk? What is and what isn't filk? And my favorite definition is anything that's performed in a filk room is filk. So it's contextual. But it's also big enough to encompass the many facets of Filk. And a second definition is simply the music of science fiction fandom. My name is Sally Child Helton. I'm an ethnomusicologist. The development of Filk has very much been tied to the development of science fiction conventions in general. So in the 1950s, the American folk song revival was coming on. And folk singing fans began bringing their guitars to science fiction conventions. And they would gather in hotel rooms or stairwells or boiler rooms or other unused corners and share their folk songs face to face. And pretty soon people started setting science fiction lyrics to known folk song tunes. And then it kept developing. People began writing original tunes and words. And today, in a filk room, you're going to see all of that. Aperture science, we do what we must because we can. As someone who had never been to a filk circle or to a house filk, if you walked in the first time, what you would get would be a warm welcome, regardless of your level of playing experience. Filkers are very open and supportive of singers and songwriters at all levels of their development. And in this way, I think the group really is unique. People come from all walks of life. We have PhDs and physicians and rocket scientists and computer techs. And we have folks who are hairdressers and folks who teach. The vibe is going to be very welcoming. You're going to see instrument cases littering every place. You're going to see people with these big, huge four and five inch three ring binders, often multiple binders set up and ready to go. And people are going to be there either as performers or listeners to, to have a good time and to share. All of the hucksters leaving, packing and moving on. Many of them's are aching after the calm. It is a new 
Ultron. Mankind has conquered the stars. Wonders of the planet Voltaire Force conceal a strange and evil force, unknown, irresistible. We have just received orders to abandon that nuclear destruct all the forests. Julie Christie carries the demon seed. He's a robot. Without you, what could he do? There's no limit to what he could do. What was he like as a teacher? What what were those lessons like? Uh, of course, he he played for me himself, and that was the best example. That was the best lesson. Can you play any of any of those songs now? Yes, for example. So there's a lot of vibrato in it, and he would show me the right way of the vibrato, but he would say, uh, in the end, this Ave Maria should be much cooler, so less vibrato. Like this. I'm Lydia Kavina, and you are listening to Stylus. This is the story of Leon Theremin. When I first started writing Theremin's biography, I felt as though someone had just dropped in my lap, almost as if I was a screenwriter, a plot that had already been written about this amazing character, this Soviet scientist wizard who was also a spy, and at the same time invented all of these science fiction-like devices, not just in music, but in many other areas as well. My name is Albert Glinsky. I'm a composer, and I'm the author of Theremin, Ether Music and Espionage. Theremin was working in a laboratory uh, around 1919, uh, after the end of the First World War. And he was uh, working on various kinds of electronic projects. And one of them was actually a gas meter where you measure the density of gas. And so he had this little needle that would sort of flicker back and forth, this analog measure of the density of gas. And one day he decided to put a sort of audio component on it. So as the density of the gas changed, the little whistle sound would become higher or lower. Then he noticed while he was working with that, that if he put his hand into the electromagnetic field around this little meter, that it actually 
affected the whistling sound regardless of whether the gas density was changing. And he was a cellist, a musician, and he felt, well, what if I could actually play a melody just by moving my hand back and forth in space in front of this little gas meter? And he did that, and his lab supervisor said, Theremin, you should develop this into a musical instrument. As you move your body away or towards the antenna, um, you're changing the capacitance. And by changing the capacitance, you affect these inductors, which in turn affects an oscillator, which in turn controls pitch. My name is John Bernhardt. I live in Somerville, Massachusetts. And since around 1996 or so, boy, it took me a while to remember, I've been playing the theremin. The traditional theremin has um, two antenna. Um, one antenna controls the volume, and the other one controls the pitch. And as your hands move closer or further away from those two antenna, you, you affect the, the loudness of the, of the sound and also the pitch of the sound. It was all done in space with the natural electromagnetism or electromagnetic uh, fields of your body interacting with the electromagnetic fields around these two antennas. The magic of it, of course, was that a person playing this instrument, newly invented instrument, about 1920, appeared to be just pulling music out of thin air. It was all very explainable by scientific principles. There is nothing really magical about it, especially in today's terms, but it was incredibly clever using the technology of the time. Everywhere he went, he attracted huge crowds, and uh, uh, Vladimir Lenin, uh, who was heading Russia at that point, was very intrigued. Lenin summoned Theremin and asked for a demonstration of this magical instrument, which he had heard about, not yet really seen. And so Theremin came and did a live demonstration in front of Lenin, I'm sure shaking in his boots. <laughs> and then uh, had Lenin himself try his hand, pun intended, at this, to go up and see if he could play this instrument. So Theremin stood behind Lenin and actually took each of his uh, wrists, kind of wrists, hands into his own hands and almost as if Lenin was a puppet was sort of manipulating his hands back and forth to actually play a tune by the Russian composer Glinka called Skylark. So here is this image of Lenin actually playing, in quotes, playing the theremin with the inventor holding and manipulating his arms so that all the motions were just right to play this musical number. Theremin did so many demonstrations around the Soviet Union, Lenin actually gave him a free rail pass to travel at will. And it was becoming such a sensation that the Soviet government felt at some point, well, you know, we have a Trojan horse in a sense in Theremin. We can send him to other countries and while people are distracted, Theremin can go and be uh, someone who is engaged in industrial espionage. And so finally, uh, in late 1927, it was decided to make the big leap and send Lev Sergeyevich Theremin, Theremin himself, over to the United States. Once he was in New York, he established roots for about a decade. If you think about what was happening just in general, the climate of invention in New York, but also the musical climate in New York. 
My name is Dalit Warshaw, and I'm a composer, pianist, and thereminist. You had people like Edgar Varese. You had Henry Cowell. You had Schillinger. You had so many musicians just uh, uh, hungry for precisely this kind of innovation. And Theremin himself was such a musician. Um, he actually performed on the Theremin with the New York Philharmonic. It seems like the reaction in general was um, so much more open-minded than you get sometimes today. If you listen to the theremin sound, you might describe it as a cross between um, a voice and possibly a string instrument, but certainly something extremely otherworldly, something a bit unsettling, perhaps. It really had for many people this sense of something very frightening, like a disembodied wailing ghost. This sound was, of course, <laughs> taken up by Hollywood and by film composers who felt that this would be a great tool for use in the movies to create the sense of terror and something frightening. And people would sometimes play it with this big vibrato, so it would whoa, 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 this sound that really was rather terrifying. The universe grows smaller every day, and the threat of aggression by any group, anywhere, be tolerated. In the 1950s, you have a lot of the use of the theremin in film soundtracks for science fiction. And the iconic film from that time period is The Day the Earth Stood Still from 1951. And Gort, the robot uh, coming from the flying saucer from outer space, is associated especially with the sound of the theremin. Gort, Matu, Rada, Nikto. The thereminist who played on these film scores in the 40s and 50s is himself kind of an interesting story because he was a podiatrist by day. His name was Dr. Samuel Hoffman, and he became the Hollywood thereminist of choice. Good evening, Johnny. Doctor, I was under the impression you were going to bring your musical instrument with you tonight. Well, this is it. <laughs> this, uh, this is a musical instrument? This is a theremin, it's an electronic instrument. You produce music or sound by waving your hand into an electrical field. Sounds like Margaret Truman in a cold shower, doesn't it? Samuel Hoffman found that that sort of wailing sound could substitute almost for a human voice used in the way that a human voice would be used for a swing band. Today, we would refer to this kind of as lounge music. Theremin arrived in New York City in December of 1927. He was doing industrial espionage the whole time he was here, and he had a lot of debts that he couldn't pay back, and the FBI, including J. Edgar Hoover, was also kind of on to him. In late uh, 1938, September to be exact, he made the decision to go back to the Soviet Union, thinking that he would be met with a hero's welcome. Six months after his arrival back in the Soviet Union, that fateful knock came on the door. 
He was arrested, tried, and convicted of anti-Soviet propaganda. And wound up himself in a Soviet labor camp, pushing a wheelbarrow in sub-freezing temperatures. After that, hired to create devices for the Soviet government. For example, the Buran eavesdropping system. So he invented the bug. One of them was smuggled into the residence of the American ambassador to Moscow in 1945. America's Moscow embassy concealed inside a wooden carving of the Great Sea. And eventually this device in 1960 wound up in the UN where it was shown that the Soviets were actually as early as 1945 bugging the Americans. Here is the clandestine listening device. Uh, you can see the, the antenna in the area, and it was right under the beak. In 1947, he was awarded the Stalin Prize for this invention, and later was at the Moscow Conservatory of Music for 10 years with a laboratory in which he taught and built theremins. Once people in New York got wind that he was there, there was a, a New York Times correspondent who wrote an article about him. When that happened, or after that happened, the vice president of the conservatory said, the people don't need electronic music. Electricity is for killing traitors in the electric chair. Termen was fired, all of his instruments destroyed. Theremin's sort of science fiction-like mind is something that really materialized in many ways. And I think Theremin, if he were alive today, would be very pleased with a lot of the developments that have come out of his work. We still look at a lot of the things that he invented or had the notion to invent as ideas that point us toward the future, not just toward the present or the past. The popularity of the ceremony has grown enormously and uh, the legacy has started already. So I would say the future of the ceremony has already started. Do you ever think of him when you're performing? Um, does his does his presence kind of stay with you? Well, I think of him too often, I would say, and he's still uh, iconic for me.
You're listening to Stylus. This episode is about the sound of science fiction. One of the themes that runs through much of Philip K. Dick's writing has to do with our relationship with technology, which is, it's not just the way we use it, but really the way we think about it or the way we conceive it. And very often he'll remind us that, uh, yes, we humans can have our ideas about technology, we can have our uh, projections of of how technology will save us in this way or that, uh, but we should not be bewildered or surprised when technology has its own ideas. And uh, this idea comes up as early as 1953 in this famous, brilliant um, short story called The Preserving Machine. This is Gregory Whitehead, radio maker, audio artist, longtime lover and reader of the work of Philip K. Dick reading The Preserving Machine with electronic music composed by Blevin Blechtum. Dr. Labyrinth, like most people who read a great deal and who have too much time on their hands, had become convinced that our civilization was going the way of Rome. I think he saw the same cracks forming that had sundered the ancient world, the world of Greece and Rome. And it was his conviction that our world now, our society, would pass away as theirs did, and a period of darkness would follow. Now Labyrinth, having thought this, began to brood over all the fine and lovely things that would be lost in the reshuffling of societies. He thought of the art, the literature, the manners, the music, everything that would be lost. And it seemed to him that of all these grand and noble things, music would probably be the most lost, the quickest forgotten. What a dry and unfortunate world it would be without music. How dusty and unbearable. This is how Doc Labyrinth came to think of the preserving machine. One evening, as he sat in his living room in his deep chair, the gramophone on low, a vision came to him. He perceived in his mind a strange sight, the last score of a Schubert trio, the last copy, dog-eared, well-thumbed, lying on the floor of some gutted place, probably a museum. A bomber moved overhead. Bombs fell, bursting the museum to fragments, bringing the walls down in a roar of rubble and plaster. But then, in Doc Labyrinth's vision, he saw the score come burrowing out like some buried mole. Quite like a mole, in fact, with claws and sharp teeth and a furious energy. If music had that faculty, the ordinary everyday instinct of survival, which every worm and mole has, how different it would be. If only a machine could be built, a machine to process musical scores into living forms. Now Doc Labyrinth was no mechanic. He made a few tentative sketches and sent them around to the research laboratories. Most of them were much too busy with war contracts, of course. 
but at last he found a small Midwestern university that was delighted with his plans, and they were happy to build and test the machine. Weeks passed before it came to him, packed carefully in a wood crate, wired together and fully insured. He was quite excited as he set to work, taking the slats from it. Many fleeting notions must have coursed through his mind as he adjusted the controls and made ready for the first transformation. He had selected a priceless score to begin with, the score of the Mozart G minor quartet. For a time he turned the pages, lost in thought, his mind far away. At last he carried it to the machine and dropped it in. Time passed. Labyrinth stood before it, waiting nervously, apprehensive and not really certain what would greet him when he opened the compartment. He was doing a fine and tragic work, it seemed to him, preserving the music of the great composers for all eternity. What would his thanks be? What would he find? What form would this all take before it was over? He opened the door. Good Lord, he said, this is very odd. A bird, not an animal, stepped out. The Mozart bird was pretty, small and slender, with the flowing plumage of a peacock. It ran a little way across the room and then walked back to him, curious and friendly. Amazing, he murmured. What would the rest of them be like? He could not guess. He carefully gathered up the Mozart bird and put it into a box. He was even more surprised the next day when a Beethoven beetle came out. Stern, dignified, intent and withdrawn on some business of its own. After that came the Schubert animal. The Schubert animal was silly, an adolescent sheep creature that ran this way and that, foolish and wanting to play. Labyrinth was stumped. He had expected an army of stout badger creatures, equipped with claws and scales, digging, fighting, ready to gnaw and kick. Was he getting the right thing? In any case, the machine was built. It was too late to turn back now. The music is different here. The vibrations are different. Not like Planet Earth. Planet Earth sound of guns, anger, frustration. There was no one to talk to from Planet Earth to understand. A lot of times, you know, science fiction really just takes the the modern issues of the day and explores them in a, a far off futuristic context. But then there's other moments where people create entirely different worlds that provide a lens to reimagine ourselves and to reimagine the times and to think of other ways to approach problems and issues. Another place in the universe, up under different stars, that would be where the altered destiny would come in. You know, when Sunrise talks about outer space, he's talking about the space right here. You know, right next to you, at, on a different plane, on a different degree, there could be a whole nother reality. And who say there cannot be? Equation-wise, the first thing to do is to consider time as officially ended. So he wanted to kind of like, you know, get outside of the traditional realms of, of music. 
Sun Ra, if he was alive, he would be a, a hundred years old. We're getting ready to celebrate his centennial. Sun Ra is perhaps one of the most innovative jazz artists, but artist, period. It was, you know, you have to understand that he was a, he was a victim of racial segregation. I'm Hank Shockley. I'm a producer, sound designer, media fanatic. I guess I do wear a lot of different hats. You know, there was definitely inequality that was going on, and he felt that. Well, he was born in Birmingham. It was the most segregated city in the Western world. It was segregated beyond anybody's imagination of what that would mean. Um, John Swed, professor of music at the moment at uh, Columbia University, director of the Center for Jazz Studies, and I'm the author of the only biography of Sun Ra. It's called Space is the Place, the Lives and Times of Sun Ra. Um, simplest things to just say that uh, black people didn't go shopping in the same area as white people on the same days, and that was one day set aside, nothing by law, but set aside for black people to go shopping. And he began to pick, think of the earth as a place where evil had been turned loose at some point, and it got worse and worse. Everything was imprisoning him and imprisoning his mind and his, his spirit. And the only way that he can express himself was through his music. Can you tell me what the first music you ever remember hearing is? Well, I never dreamed about being a musician. I was busy studying in school. It seems like he was a voracious reader at a very young age. My name is Yatasha Womack. I'm an author and filmmaker. I'm the author of a book called Afrofuturism, The World of Black Sci-Fi and Fantasy Culture. So he was reading a great deal when he was uh, growing up in Birmingham. On one side, the cartoon kind of uh, Buck Rogers sort of things that we know about. These two people have remained in a state of suspended animation for 500 years. 500 years? That makes me old enough to be my own great-grandfather. I'm guessing that people got more out of those cartoons than just um, amusement. These were kind of uh, the poor person's science fiction. He read things about metaphysics. He read philosophical texts. He read a great deal about Egyptology. At the same time, uh, King Tut was discovered in Egypt. This was but the lid enclosing the mortal remains of the young King Tutankhamun. Even now, people will tell you there are certain things about uh, the pyramids and, and the hieroglyphs and what have you that suggest they weren't earthly, that they'd come from some outside influence. He began to see these as science fiction and history coming together in a peculiar way. Sun Ra saw world history as it was taught, particularly at that time, as a big myth. And Sun Ra had done enough reading that he, he connected Egypt to um, uh, as opposed to white people, he connected to a, a place where black people came from. He was asserting that these were cultures that made great contributions, and, and they were symbolic of many cultures that made great contributions, but much of that history was uh, destroyed or not referenced. It, it seemed to me that he was just always on this quest and it was a quest to find what was true. And at some point, 
when he came across so much knowledge that was not being taught in traditional ways, um, his perception of what was true became what other people would call a fantasy. So he kind of like wanted to, you know, he created this this whole new realm for himself. I like to say call to his, his profession in the same way a preacher or a minister might be called to it. Um, he saw it as an alien encounter. I've been taught by a superior type of beings from other spheres, things that the world should see. They talked to me about this plant and the way it was headed and what was going to happen to teenagers and governments and people. So then they said I was the only one that could do this job. I did go out of space through what I thought was like a giant spotlight that shined on me. And my body was changed into something like beams of light. And then I went up at terrific speed to another dimension, another planet. They had antennas right over their eyes. And they told me, now we're going to teach you a type of music that uh, we'll talk. They will listen. And then they told me about the space age. I should talk about that. I was talking about computers. I was talking about electronic instruments. I was talking about spaceships. Sun Ra had what he sometimes described as an alien abduction and believed that he was put on this planet to heal people through music. I think that he also teetered on seeing his otherworldliness as a tool of empowerment, um, one that helped him to create the kind of music that he was most interested in exploring. My name is Craig Harris, and uh, I'm a trombonist and a composer. And uh, I had the very good fortune to work with Sun Ra between the years of 1976 and 1979. The band, they all lived together in, in Morton Street on Philadelphia at that time. And it would be real funny, the ki little kids in the neighborhood, they you know that's the space house, that's where the space people live. Sun Ra used to walk around with his costumes, toned down from the stage, but he'd have on his, a, a, probably a, a, a nice pullover with a picture of Saturn on it, and he'd have his hat on. And the kids just was in the neighborhood, that's the space man, you know, so they knew all the space people were in there. You either were amused by him or not. He was a 24-hour charlatan if he was, and a German paper at the time had something like charlatan or genius, and that was sort of the way he was being posed between those things. They just couldn't comprehend that anyone could live like this, but he was living like it, and he never got out of character. The persona was constantly there. I had never been around anyone that dedicated to what they do. Nothing else mattered to Sun Ra nothing but the music and the band. The band was like his army. It was his political organization that was uh, using sound to convey the message to the masses. And looking at technology, I'm sure that was just a, another way to create different and new sounds. Perhaps there was some magic in terms of what these newer sounds could do and the impact they could have on 
the human consciousness. And him picking up the synthesizer, it's kind of like him reaching. You know, it's like, it's like I want to reach towards Saturn. And, and how do I get there? You know, I want to get there through, through frequencies that I've never heard before, that people never heard before. And so it was a beautiful experience, and I've been pretty much um, carrying on that thing about this whole idea of uh, of the myth, you know, the, of the of the myth, of the myth, of the myth. Just you know, this all of this is just a myth. It's it's your whatever reality you have, you can choose. You can choose your own reality. Who says you can't? It's, there's no there's no limits. There's no limits. You know, there's no limits. Like space is the place, there's no limits. What's the word magic mean to you? Well, the whole thing, the whole thing was created by a magician, a magician. Musician, mad guy, it all fits in. Imagination. About the Sound of Science Fiction was produced by Anna Cataldo, Zach Ezor, Connor Gillies, Annie McEwen, and Kainat Khan, with help from writer Mark Sinker, who supplied the previously unheard archival audio of Sun Ra. Thanks to Catherine Gorman and Erica Lance for helping to edit the hour, and thanks to our engineers, Marquise Neal, James Trout, and Paul Beitkus. Our intro music is by Ryoji Ikeda. We're going out on music by Laurel Halo. Our executive producers are Connor Gillies and Zach Ezor. Our supervising editor is Lisa Tobin. I'm Kainat Khan. You can find us and hear more on iTunes and on Twitter, at Stylus Radio. And check out our website, wbur.org stylus. Stylus is supported by WBUR in Boston and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange.